0: Thunderbolt Strength. Welcome to the Thunderbolt Strength Podcast. This is Bryant Hankins and I have my co-host Molly. Hey Bryant. And Kevin. Hey Bryant. And And today we have Shane Bergwald and George Murphy. They'll be talking about their journey to sobriety and how CrossFit Thunderbolt helped them along the way. Welcome to the show guys.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Hi, how you doing? So I, we, we kind of thought a good place to start with this podcast would be uh, to hear a little bit about you guys' backstory. Uh, so tell us, Shane, first, I guess, uh, where you grew up and uh, some kind of key points in your life growing up.
1: I grew up in uh, a smaller town, Ottawa, Illinois. grew up there uh, from birth to I left there in 21, when I was 21 years old to uh, join the military. Uh, prior to that... Uh, Enjoyed sports, uh, played football. I wrestled a little bit, and uh, that's about it. It's, um, you know, I have uh, uh, three older brothers who uh, would put me through the gauntlet every day growing up, which was uh, a lot of good life lessons in disguise. Um, and um, two wonderful parents that stayed married their whole life, and uh, it was a good upbringing.
0: Yeah. What? Um, so you mentioned joining the military. Is that something like since you were 12, you always wanted to do, or was there a key moment where it really clicked in your head?
1: Yeah, no, growing up, um, I always was attracted to doing hard things, and I knew that I wanted to be a police officer someday, and I knew that if I was ever going to join the military, it was going to be the United States Marine Corps, and um, that's kind of what I gravitated to, and uh, I went to uh, college after high school. Uh, I went to the community college and uh, did well there and just didn't. I wasn't finding enough challenge, and I was kind of just tired of school. So that's what I kind of guess made me uh, join that at that age, twenty-one.
0: And was the military what you expected? I mean, did you went into it with a certain mindset, and was it what what you were expecting?
1: Yeah, um, I, I I just uh, have this feeling that everyone should serve you know, if you're physically able to. I just think that we owe it to uh, us being uh, Americans and all the the great liberties that we we have i just think that everyone should. Yeah, and there are some, some countries some that have that. I mean,
0: like Israel's mandatory military service for everyone and
1: Yeah. So i just kind of always had that calling um to give back for all that America has given to me. And so um i i knew i wanted infantry and uh i knew that if i was going to go in again i want that challenge and um uh that's so that's what i did. I enlisted for uh, 1998, I listed in August and uh, I enlisted for what's called the 0300 Open Contract. And so, what that means is um, after uh, basic or boot camp, I'd go to the School of Infantry and I'd go to the School of Infantry, is split in half. It's uh, Marine Corps Combat Training, MCT, is for all non infantry Marines, and then ITB, Infantry Training Battalion, is for all infantry Marines. So, you go there and uh, you go through some training there, and then you get to Choose, or I guess you get to l- write down your three top MOSs, military occupational specialty, which ones you wanted. And so you could choose from 0311 rifleman, 0331 uh, machine gunner, 0341 mortarman, and 0351 anti tank assaultman. And so that's what I did. I, I chose um, my top three, which is 0331 machine gunner and then 0311, and I don't remember what my third choice was, and I got machine gunner.
2: What made you choose machine gunner?
1: Uh, I don't know. I think it was, uh, maybe the scenes from Rambo or something. Yeah. Swap or, the one. yeah. Or, you know, the, and, and the other thing too, is how, how difficult it was. If you look at uh, the statistics in Vietnam, I think the average lifespan of a machine gunner was around uh, 12 or 16 seconds after they opened up. Um, and, uh, so it was just one of those things where, um, I, I took a lot of pride in knowing that I was the support for the movement and so you know being willing to carry the extra weight the extra equipment to go there to protect uh, the riflemen to provide that that cover fire for them um, yeah that's what I was drawn to yeah
0: and then so you where were you on September 11th and then how did that change the
1: direction <clears throat> of where you were heading in the military uh, I was in the military on September 11th and uh, <clears throat> I was um, Attached to first Battalion, fourth marines scout sniper platoon and I'll never forget. I was sitting on my uh, on My rock my pack and we we're doing um urban operations we We're doing uh, to get Soc X qualifies uh, special operations capable uh, we We're doing our true X stuff with uh, it was uh, my scout sniper platoon uh, force recon uh, Raider recon and battalion recon and we go out and we do greenside operations and black side operations black side operations are termed for urban terrain and so I was waiting for a, a bird to come in um, the CH 46 to pick us up and we we're gonna get transported out to a city and do some military operations in urban terrain and I just remember sitting there and it was waiting for the you know it's always a hur- hurry up and wait drill and so we're waiting on the, the bird to come in and I hear um, around this uh, CP um, this duty station, you know, hey, come in here, come in here, and so I see all these marines running uh towards the c p and uh uh I've seen the images unfolding on the television with the the buildings on smoke and um I just remember it was like a colonel that come downstairs and he just told us, "Hey, start packing up, you know,'re probably gonna be leaving early, so that kind of changed uh, and we did we deployed uh much earlier to uh go support. Operation uh, Enduring Freedom. Yeah, I think that's one of those things where everyone of a
0: certain age remembers where they were at on September. It was sort of like the Challenger explosion. There's those key events where you can always go back and say, oh, here's where I was. I mean, I know I was traveling and I was stuck out in San Diego. She was here with Wes, who was very young, and it was like I couldn't get back and all the planes were grounded. And I think everybody has that story in their head of like where they were at that time and how it was a big
1: change from reality before. Yeah, it changed everything and put the world back in perspective, for sure.
0: So that when you deployed after that, was that the second deployment?
1: Um, that was that was my second deployment. I did uh, another one prior to that during peacetime, uh, prior to 9-11. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, my second deployment, uh, which that, we're speaking of.
0: Was that straight to Fallujah, then?
1: No, that was my third deployment. Fallujah was my third ah, okay. deployment. My second deployment was uh, in support of uh, Operation Anaconda, in Afghanistan. And then uh, we also, I was in um, Operation Edge and Mallet in Africa during uh, post 9-11.
2: Awesome. So speaking of 9-11, George, going to take it over to you. Where were you on 9-11?
3: I was in my senior year at SIU Edwardsville, and I was in my apartment getting up, getting ready to go to class for the day, and uh, turned on the TV and saw what was going on. And obviously they had canceled classes and I, re- I remember just sitting there for hours, just staring at the TV, just couldn't believe what was going on. So.
2: Pretty shocking time. Yeah. So go ahead and give us your backstory then.
3: So I grew up on, on a farm in central Illinois, just south of Springfield, um, very, very small town. Um, had p- worked on the farm like, through my whole childhood and through high school and had planned on probably just working on the farm. Um, but. Like everybody else in our family we all went to college so I did Uh, ended up going to SIU Edwardsville mainly because they offered me the biggest sports scholarship for track and uh, studied plant and soil sciences basically and uh, let's see junior year I met Latrice my wife and uh, she actually ran track for SIU Carbondale at the time and so once I graduated then I uh, Decided to go to grad school at Carbondale and started studying soybean pathology and breeding. Um, Basically just keeping it in the ag. Uh, And halfway through, I was just so bored that I decided to switch majors to landscape design. And uh, that's brought me to where I am now. Um, We ended up getting married. I was... 2003 so I was halfway through my master's she was in her last year of her undergrad and then once we finished school we moved up up here and been here ever since now we have three kids uh, Anastasia who is 12 George Jr. just turned nine and Caden, who's seven Um, so that brings us up to where we are now so
2: that that reminds me we have a a small world connection here between uh, George and Bryant uh... (laughs) I, I'm not going to remember what it is. I are. don't
0: remember what it is either. I know it was, it's a very deep connection, but none of us yes. remember what it is, <laughs> but long story short is we both grew up in very small town, central Illinois. That's probably, I don't know, 10 minutes from each other. And like, you know, it's like George's aunt knows my second cousin and they're, they're mentioned in a book together. And yeah, his
3: cousins grew up like next door, but in the country next door, could be a couple miles away. Yeah. Um, to like my great aunts and uncles and my grandpa. And, uh, but yeah, they, they, my great aunt wrote a book and, and. Mentioned the Hankins yeah, in there. Yeah, they're so mentioned I'm in there. I'm famous.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm Central Illinois famous. Uh, wasn't your dad like the mayor of the town you my, grew up? My dad is the mayor of Burden. uh, It's a town of, what is like 3,000 people? Nice. So oh. you like royalty down there. <laughs> well,
3: this has all happened <laughs> since I moved away, so. Yeah. How do you
0: feel like growing up in Central Illinois shaped who you are today, um either shaped or didn't shape. Or didn't shape, yeah. <laughs> either way. You can um, take it either way.
3: It's it's different for for sure. Um and probably the first time I realized how different it is is when I introduced my parents to Latrice, who's obviously black, and uh I'm obviously white. <laughs> <laughs> you are <laughs> <laughs> um You don't but, run like a white man. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's more of just How people think But in the small town It seems like more people are just worried About what other people think What do her parents think? Um, Her parents love me And actually a good story is The first time I met her dad We went to his house on It's like it was 119th street On the south side of Chicago So I was a little nervous you know i've never been really to that area before and uh we walked in his house and first thing her dad said was you got yourself a big old white boy <laughs> and, uh, but I, I think what they love so much about me is i have always i always was and always will be just who i am i'm not going to act like somebody else and try to fit in and i i think they you know they just saw that in me and so they you know they liked me so that's awesome uh, yeah,
0: and i think i'm going to just touch on something else from the midwest and that, this is my experience i don't know if it was yours at all but it since it's at some level this podcast is going to be somewhat about alcoholism i'll talk about for me growing up it was like that was the thing to do down there it's like I mean, we were part of the lake springfield boat club and you know everybody was drinking all the time and i i, I was an only child and i would just remember playing shuffleboard in bars all the time because my parents were always taking me there and that was just like what do you do in Central Illinois? Oh, go to a bar and start drinking, and you know that—that's your Sunday. And I remember going to my grandparents, and every and they'd all be sitting in their garage drinking all day, and like that was the—that um, was their life, right? And like a bunch of them died young from liver and all kinds of problems just from like hitting it too hard for too long. And I think kids react differently to that, right? So mine was like, I'm never touching this stuff, and for the longest time, I never drank at all, like not a drop. And now I will occasionally, but I it definitely had a huge impact I mean remember seeing my parents like passing out all the time and like when one time my dad fell down and the glasses like broke into his head and he was like bleeding all over and and it was like very impactful as a youth and I don't know if that's just central Illinois or kind of everywhere or was it uh,
3: it's I sound very similar um uh, my family mainly the Murphys um all pretty big drinkers everything we do there's a party revolved around it Yeah, Uh, You you can turn anything into a party, and it leads to a lot of drinking. My parents, though, my dad did drink, does drink, but we never really saw it. Uh, And my mom does not drink at all. And I grew up saying I was never going to drink. I never drank through high school. I made it halfway through my freshman year in college. And I kind of feel like at that point when I did decide to try it, it was just like a dam breaking, and I just went crazy. Yeah. After that, just like making up. So some this lost was time. college, or this was this after. This was college. Yeah. Um, I mean, high school. I never went out. I was in my driveway playing basketball every night. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, once I started, there was
0: no going back. Yeah. How about you, Shane? What's your
1: you <clears throat> um, story there? Yeah, growing up in the Midwest, I guess you'd call out of that still. Um, you know, I wasn't uh, that far south as you guys were, but. Um, Still a lot of things carry over. I think to Ottawa and uh, like I said, I grew up with uh, three older brothers Um, My dad was an alcoholic. So right away, you know, we already had that going against us Um, He sobered up a year before I was born So I got to know my father um, as a sober one my other brothers didn't and um, I don't know how that was uh, because obviously I wasn't around um, and some of the age differences, uh, between me, my brothers and most is uh, uh, me and the oldest is tw- 10 years apart. So he obviously remembers and experienced more. Um, but I didn't drink all that much in high school. I was like, I said, heavy into sports and working out and stuff. Um, I enjoyed the outdoors. And if I did drink, it was, you know, me and my friends going camping and fishing or something, but it never got extreme at that point in my life. And when I went to college, uh, I didn't drink um and then when i went into the military um we started i started drinking more um as more of a social thing because in the infantry you can go out into the bush for weeks at a time three weeks at a time when you deploy you're gone for months and so the natural thing to do when you come back is to drink right so we had some wild and crazy times both on and off base uh, to kind of um Get that release mechanism.
2: So, um, Shane, why don't you start telling us your um, rock bottom moment?
1: Rock bottom, going straight there. <laughs> <laughs> I or, or take I us thought, on a journey we're along to the it. way. We're well, like, well, jumping right in. My my trauma, and I don't I don't mind. I'm not I'm not ashamed. I'm not uh, embarrassed by any of this. Um, uh, part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was because there's there's veterans out there um, that have similar experiences um that are in dark times right now and and they need to you know hopefully god willing they find the right person to bring them out of it so you know if anyone's listening to this and they have those things going on please get help and we lose like 22 veterans a day i think it might crazy it might come down to 21 now i think was the latest that just came out so and that's the suicide um so yeah um and so my alcoholism uh, came from trauma and, you know, being a a seasoned combat veteran in the Marine Corps, it's hard to uh, admit that you need help. And so when I came back from my last deployment, which was Fallujah, Iraq, um, I came back in 2005 and I thought I had all the answers and everyone kept telling me that you're not the same person and that's understandable going through what I went through and it wasn't my first go around overseas. And so I ignored what everyone else was telling me and I for 10 years um, tried to avoid the hurt and the suffering that I was having inside with some of the things and just to kind of set the setting um, for those that aren't familiar with the battle in Fallujah, it was called uh, Operation Phantom Fury, and uh, it kicked off in November of 2004. And the high-value target inside the city was Abu al Zarqawi, And if you remember, he was the one doing a lot of the beheadings that were posted online. And he was the one that was in charge of al-Qaeda in, in the larger Iraq theater, and he was operating, operating out of Fallujah. And Fallujah was pretty much bypassed during Operation Iraqi Freedom. It was bypassed because of geographically where it's located, but also it wasn't, um, if I remember correctly, the generals wanted a shortcut or they wanted to bypass some things to get to Baghdad in a rush to topple Baghdad because if you cut off the head of the snake, generally then everything else falls, and I think that's the strategy they were going for. And even when Saddam Hussein was in charge he had a hard time controlling Fallujah. Fallujah is also known as the city of Moss because it has the most. Um, And it was just always this different type of city that was hard to be ruled for whatever reason. And uh, I'm not going to get into the the Shiite uh, Sunni issues, um, but that also had come into play down the road. So... In November of and I'll make this brief but in November of uh, 2004 um, we everything was aligned uh, politically and militarily to go into Fallujah and try to get Abu al-Zarqawi and there were according to Intel there were four to five thousand insurgents massed in the center of the Jolan district and they had plenty of time to fortify and set up um, IEDs, which is a improvised explosive device, and VBIDs, which is vehicle-borne uh, improvised explosionary device where they could drive into, let's say, a Marine patrol and detonate it. And um, the size and scope of Fallujah is the city of Aurora times three to give you some scale. It's a good-sized city. Yeah, it's about... Uh, 600, a little over 600,000 people, and it's urban. Yeah. So everything is door-to-door. And the construction of these houses made this fight unique because there were these walls in these houses, uh, both exterior and interior walls, that were three feet thick of concrete, rebar, and brick. And it acts as insulation over there. So it keeps the cold in and it keeps the heat in. And so, it made the fighting even closer than what it maybe could have been, right? Because I mean, yeah, I remember seeing 50 cal machine guns going off and it not really penetrating through that exterior wall of the house. So, what the insurgents were doing, and we weren't fighting Iraqis, we were fighting uh, insurgencies. We were fighting Iranians, Chechens, Syrians, anyone who wanted to come to the, you know, the cause of the fighting the infidels. I mean, we saw other people from other nations there as well. And I, the reason why I know this is because I had an interpreter with me. Yeah. And he could um, understand their dialect.
0: And so at the time were a lot of the civilians gone, so it was less of you had to worry about civilians kind of getting in the
1: way? Yeah. Uh, uh, they, Our, our command, um, and not the command that I was in, but whoever the generals were at the time, um, the commanding officers were at the time, I'm sure, um, had a part in it. But there was preparatory things that were set in place i remember uh they had an army psyops team come out with the humvees and the big loudspeakers and in arabic they would announce to the city that on a given date and time marines are going to come in here and if you're here Mm -hmm. you're going to be declared hostile
0: so it wasn't a surprise invasion at all it was very like hey we're coming kind of thing
1: yes and, and it wasn't a surprise because we wanted to limit civilian casualties um they, I think they also dropped leaflets too, as well. So there was an informational campaign that was going out there, um, so to try to subvert. And then you go into the um, issues of ISIS, or excuse me, of uh, Al Qaeda, uh, the insurgency using um, humans as shields. Sure. So we wanted to try to limit that as well. Um, so going back to the structure of the house. It made the fights close. We had to be into the same room as each other uh, to shoot one another. Yeah. Um, And so when we kicked that campaign off, that that operation off in early November, um, we were fighting all the way up through into December. We're still having issues. And, you know, we killed about 2,300 and detained another 1,000, I think are the numbers are close to. And in doing so we took some casualties. And, um, so <laughs> some of that is still tough, you know, for me, I have a lot of, um, survivor's guilt that I'm still dealing with. And I, I talk to people all the time about it. Um, you know, now I go to the VA, uh, before I, I wouldn't. And, um, I recently got back in touch with, uh, my company commander, uh, who's, uh, he retired as a major, uh, Brian Chantosh, And, um, it's been really good uh, to talk with him. We talked for a little bit um, over the phone a while back, uh, about an hour or so, and he kind of brought things back into perspective in a good way, um, and he p- kind of put the onus back on me about some things and um, really kind of helped me compartmentalize, number one, the injury and and to the recovery, and so, um, yeah. So, getting back to the point, I came back in two thousand and five, um, and I started to try to. So, what I was doing inadvertently, I didn't even know what I was doing, but I would try to occupy every second of my day. Mm-hmm. So, if it wasn't work, it was college. I went back to school and yeah. I came back. Um, and it affected personal relationships and if i had free time i was drinking yeah and so you know i would be fine if i could occupy every moment of the day until my head hit the pillow it's one of those things where i'm going to stay really busy so i don't have to think about it kind of thing yeah to try to suppress that um on a daily basis and always dreading that time when i had to go to bed yeah and i knew that my head was going to hit the pillow because how do you then occupy that time right and so drinking helped me just pass out yeah and um it was a kind of a weird thing because I was staying functional in life on the professional aspect not the personal one but in the professional aspect I was never late for work yeah I performed well at work I was a straight-a student both in undergrad and grad school um it was just those moments when I had free time Mm -hmm. after I finished school um and uh, my job changed I went into investigations I had more time more free time and so this is obviously all before I started or tried CrossFit and then I was drinking so I worked 2 to 10 shift and so every night I'd go home on the way uh, home and stop at the Casey's and pick up a case of beer and I would drink all of it every night um most of my nights were spent still drinking till the sun rose. And then I would pass out, get up, shower, change, go to work.
0: And so were you like completely functional at this time or was it starting to creep out? Like things were ha- starting to slip or yeah, no, it was affecting relationships? Or? Yeah.
1: Relationships my, were always not good um, because I wasn't dealing with my issues like I should have been. And so I lost a marriage because of it. Um, and um i probably could have lost my r- the relationship with my daughter uh, if it continued down the road it was going down so everything leading up to november 11th um is hard for me because it's the day of my ambush um and to be real brief um we on november 11th 2004 we were, our operations changed just a little bit in the way of our formation of attack and so we had to attack from north to south these blocks in fallujah the problem is around these houses have six to eight feet high walls around the yards of the houses and they're just as thick as the walls inside the house so it raises the question of how are you going to get over them
0: Mm
1: -hmm. because we didn't have the resources and assets to breach every one of them with amtrak's or tanks so you got to climb over you can't go through a way that you would normally walk through because that's pr- likely to be compromised by an IED. And you also don't want to funnel your your trajectory going inside of a place. So you want to be inconsistent with your your operations. Always keep them guessing. So it raises a question, if we get Marines on the other side, and they take fire and they get pinned down, how are we going to get them back without? right? So I had to split my squad up into two basic six-man fire teams because we had to attack these two houses simultaneously. It's something that you generally don't do. You like to keep a squad together because they, it augments each element within the squad. It's organic. You have an, uh, a recon element, a support element, and an assault element. So you split it up, and now you just have those in a smaller right man teams. So we hit uh, the, these two houses simultaneously, and we get ambushed in one. And um, one of my uh, team leaders got shot through the face with an RPK machine gun. Uh, His whole lower jaw uh, was pretty much gone. One of my anti-tank assault men got shot through the chest, had a sucking chest wound. Um, We had multiple people, Marines that were fragged, including myself, um, by whether it be fragmentation from a grenade or or round. um, And... That same morning, my lieutenant was shot and killed by a sniper that we had to go retrieve. So my squad, due to combat injuries, was cut in half that morning. Thankfully, everyone in my squad lived. Uh, We got them. I remember we were putting the quick clot in one of my Marines' uh, face that got shot through the face. You never do that because it's going to seize the airway eventually, but the volume of blood he was losing... It was like turning on a water faucet at mm-hmm. the rate and so I just thought well we got to give him a fighting chance if anything so we started packing quick clot in his face and he eventually seized but bravo surgical came out in enough time gave him emergency trach and uh, got his airway reestablished and he's still alive thankfully my lieutenant on the other hand was shot and killed by a sniper so um you know just that was one morning you know that was just one morning and um i was there from november all the way through may of 2005 a lot of a lot of hard times um but it, you know that's combat right so trying to unpack that is difficult when you come back to the united states and um at that i'm i'm hoping there's a lot more resources uh, devoted to veterans now um but when i came back it was a joke Um, I remember I got sent to medical and I sat down with a Navy doctor for five minutes and they, they, you're good to go. And they stamped my service record book and I walked out the door. Right. Um, that wasn't the case. Uh, that was not good.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like, it it sounds like you're starting to experience this now is it's one of those things where it's like talking about it is help. Like the. Your gut instinct is to like shove it down right i don't want to think about it but it sounds like talking about it's helpful but i assume at the time it was sort of like nobody wants to talk about it or kind of like man up we're not talking about this or yeah
1: right i mean yeah i mean my um my recovery has been so great so far um before uh starting crossfit before getting sober and all that there's no way i could have talked about this and stayed relatively you know keeping my motions and everything sure you know kind of intact There's no way I could have, you know, talked about that. I'm much better at handling it. Uh, It's, you know, getting better over time. And I think it's going to reach even a higher plateau of recovery once I'm out of law enforcement. I picked one of the worst possible jobs to get into when I came back from the military. And sort of because you're like reliving some of those scenes. I mean, they're, they're obviously
0: not the same, but similar enough where you're going into a house weapons drawn kind of thing. Yeah. Uh,
1: one, one of the number one thing is the hypervigilance. Yeah. So you always have to, you know, be aware of your surroundings and, you know, the, play the what if game. What if I get a threat around this corner? What if, and then you're always responding to emergencies. Um, you're always seeing people at their worst. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'm still going through traumatic events. Um, I, for a quick example, was responding to a homicide in another town where I used to work as a law enforcement officer. And my backup was far away, and I dispatch reported that the female started losing or lost consciousness and, and may not be breathing now. All I know is that there's a shooter um, potentially still on site and that there was communication established with the shooter and dispatch told that person to not have a gun in your hand when the police show up um i asked for the status of my backup they're still a ways away i decided to push um because of that fee the state of that female i decided to go alone mm-hmm. you should never do that but given my experience i felt capable to do that and you put that badge on and you swear to an oath and you know sometimes you just got to do that you just got to go and and hope that uh you know everything works out it's just part of the job so i went to the house um parked off the side of the road blacked out moved up the 45 degree angle a man came out i addressed him uh with my service pistol and thankfully he just had a cell phone in his hand Um cuffed him up real quick, backup arrived, I went inside. I turned this female over, and um, it was one of the most vivid flashbacks, the first vivid flashback I've ever experienced in my life. And the shot placement of that round in her chest looked exactly the same as the one on my lieutenant. And it was the exact same spot and the exact same appearance from the outside and that was just that that was hard and um so that's just an example of how i'm not able to hit that next level of recovery until i'm out of this profession sure does that make sense
0: yeah totally you're kind of reliving part of it yeah and then so you were kind of getting back to the story you were using alcohol as kind of like press it down um i guess so that continued for a bit. What what finally changed things, or what finally?
1: Yeah, d- just to touch on the alcohol to try to subdue all that, it's it doesn't work. And you, you know, I don't learn things easy sometimes, and so I would try to flirt and manage that place of euphoria when everything's numb, and you try to balance that, it's a teeter-totter effect, when inadvertently, every time I would start drinking, I would go past that, and then I'm crying anyways, or I want to punch holes in the drywall. Right. Or I want to, you know, I mean, it, it's just, it eventually got there anyways. Um, but uh, leading up to November uh, in 2015, I was taking a shower and all of a sudden fell down. I collapsed. And I literally thought I was dying. And I felt this pressure in my chest that I've never felt before, and I felt like I was going in a cardiac arrest. So the smart thing was to, to dry off and put on clothes and drive myself to the hospital instead of calling for an ambulance because that's how I roll apparently. <laughs> so I, I, I get to the hospital, and they tell me, we can't find anything medically wrong with you. So when we can't find anything physi- physiologically attributing to your symptoms, we then look to the mind. Mm-hmm. because the mind can manufacture these symptoms. So they started asking me a little bit about my past and what's going on upstairs, and that scared me. And when I came back home that night, I called. The Marine Corps has a Wounded Warrior Regiment. And um, so uh, I called the Wounded Warrior Regiment, and they sent on an active-duty gunnery sergeant. And he came to my house, picked me up, took me to Heinz, V.A., and uh started the process of drying out and and getting benefits and talking to people to try to start that recovery i came back out uh, relapsed went back in came back out relapsed um and then in march of 2016 i was driving on route 34 and i seen the lights on inside a crossfit place and I drove up there, and it's like a little after ten, and it was on a Thursday night. And if you all remember, the open is during that time. I had no idea what that was or what even CrossFit was. Right. And I ran into two people, um, and uh, Justin and Andrea. And uh, they had that Thursday night Throwdown, and everyone was already gone. It was just them two there, and I talked with them and. Shortly after that, started training at Thunderbolt CrossFit. All right.
0: I want to pause you in your story so we can get George back yep. up to speed. It's, we'll, we'll leave the audience hanging for how this concludes. We'll get back to you, though. So college was kind of for you, you know, when you said kind of the dam broke. And then for you, was it I'm using alcohol to have fun? Or did you feel like it was similar to Shane? You're like covering up some trauma or something or what? Um. Unlike Shane, I really don't know why I started drinking so much. Um,
1: Because it tastes so good. (laughs)
3: uh, College is kind of a blur. Uh, So in high school, I was your straight-A high honor roll, you know, star athlete. And went to college, you know, doing track, um, going all my classes, and then started drinking. And like I said, it just got out of control and to the point where I... What I was doing on the track started becoming becoming less and less. Like I went as a decathlete and ended up my last year just throwing the javelin. Um, my grades didn't really suffer. I s- still managed all A's and B's through college, but I was skipping so much class. You know, you quickly figure out that you don't need to go to class to to get good grades. And it just it wasn't really me. But I was always really shy and had a hard time like approaching people. Or anything and so many people told me they thought i was just an uptight snob and really i was just i was so shy yeah and what i found out with alcohol is i could quickly become the life of every party and 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 we partied and partied, (laughs) and so i I mean got through my four years then went to carbondale and i think that's at the point where then it was less less of a social thing because i was a grad student didn't really know uh too many people there other than, like latrice and i w- you know we we got married my second year there so it was basically just the two of us um so i found myself you know just drinking alone sometimes and
2: carbondale is a great drinking town <laughs>
3: it, yeah it was toned down by the time i got there but um i would, then at that point i would just find ex- excuses to drink or I'd, i just felt like drinking so i would drink and then uh, after school was done, we moved up here. You know, we were both working. Um, we got to the point, we just bought our first house. Latrice was pregnant with our first. And then all of a sudden, within the six month period, we had both lost our jobs. And so I, I don't know if I was, I don't know, I guess I just liked how drinking made me feel. It just, you almost didn't really have, for that evening, any worries or, or whatnot. And, So then just over the years, it just kind of going from drinking on weekends to, you know, a couple, you know, three times a week. And then by four years ago, I was Latrice will say I was drinking every night. I still say it was every other night just because I know I couldn't, I physically couldn't do it every night. Um, But it was... You know, uh, about 16 beers probably every other night, and it was to the point where I had cases of beer stashed at different places in our yard and in the house, <laughs> and you know, so I would like sneak upstairs. And, and you know, you have a problem when y- when you're fine with drinking hot beers, <laughs> <laughs> even I when I it's bad, it's yeah, still good. I think
0: that's really what finally something just clicked in me, and I were you seeing it starting to impact like. I don't know, relationships or, or other things in your life or for the most part it's like "eh, i'm relaxing, it's good no yeah problems.
3: i mean i'd say i was high functioning i mean it didn't yeah. affect my work or it, i thought it didn't I, i'm sure it probably did yeah um you know i um but i i don't know i just finally a couple of things happened you know a a uh, family get together with Latrice's family one night ended up in a fight. I'm pretty sure I caused it, <laughs> even though at, by the end of it I was locked up in a bedroom upstairs while it was finishing outside. And uh, it got to the point where I, f- I'm like, this isn't fair to my kids or Latrice. I know everybody says you should stop drinking for yourself, but for me it was more for them. Um, you know what good will come out of that is good for me. Yeah um and so
0: is it sort of like you just felt like you weren't present for them kind of thing or because it it whatever changed you or i mean
3: you know i mean there would be some sometimes when i was drinking i was mr happy-go-lucky and there was other times where anger would come out yeah and shane and i have talked about this before we're like Pretty much, alcohol is involved in everything, every aspect of life. There is alcohol there. Yeah. And if we were going to a party or a get-together or anything, we would assess the situation beforehand. Is there going to be enough beer here for me to get drunk? Because if not, <laughs> I don't want to drink. That's option. The first option is I, I'm not going to drink. If I'm not going to get drunk, I'm not going to drink. Second option is, okay, well, how can I figure out how to get more beer here? Yeah. Because I know there's not going to be enough. And. So, little things like that you just start picking up on over time and it's y- and it's fine. logistics like, yes <laughs> you're like i got a problem
0: yeah it reminds me there's a stephen king the writer quote where he talks about he's like i knew i had a problem when i kept emptying out the trash and it was all these beer cans and it's like <laughs> you know every day there'd be all these beer cans I'm like where are all these beer cans coming from it's like it's just the level of the amount he's like he finally realized like yeah. something's not right
3: <laughs> or I would be like, oh, I got to
0: go out to the nursery to tag
3: plants for tomorrow. And really, I was just running out to get more beer. I mean, I would go tag plants, but <laughs> there was a different agenda. And I I knew for a while I had a problem because I, you know, looked into like AA, like where it was at and that. I never went. Um, and Latrice and I had even talked about it a few times. And I think after the incident with her family, and then I think, like the next week we had our company picnic at work and you know i drove home when i should not have been driving home and we sat on the couch and like it's time to stop and i haven't drank again since that day um i'll I'll open up that i have this app on my phone
2: that's what i was gonna ask is how many days it's been
3: i started this that day It was August 30th, 2014, so it's almost four years. Wow. 1,408 days. Drinks not consumed, 9,514. Wow. Money saved. This one's a little sketchy because the lowest amount it would let me put in is a dollar per drink, and beer obviously doesn't cost a dollar per drink, but it says $9,500. Wow. Here's the big one. Calories saved, 980,010.
2: Yeah, for real. So. I wanna add something from my perspective um, as someone who has alcoholic family members or family members that I think are alcoholic, um, that's their decision to make, but um, also what's saved is th- your presence in the family. And I think it's the same for you, Shane, because I can speak from experience of that being the um, person who's wondering, where did that person go? Where are they? Why are they not showing up? and. Um, them not being present for you. So I, I guess the app can't count that, but that's I mean, something from my perspective.
3: Yeah. Um.
1: Just a sidebar real quick. Um, what isn't represented on that app, and I think Molly touched on it, was that you saved your family. Uh, essentially. Because I, cause
3: it w- it would have gotten worse. Yeah. And, and I mean, realistically, I don't know how Latrice put up with it as long as she did. Because obviously you never think it's as bad as it actually no. is. And you might sit here and tell yourself, I don't have a problem. Odds are you do. Um, I I believe if you've ever gotten to that point where you're like, maybe I should just cut back for a little bit or maybe I should just take a month off, you have a problem. If you've ever had a thought like that or have ever done that, you have a problem.
2: And that's been my experience as uh, the people in my acquaintance saying, oh, I'm going to take, I'm not going to drink for a month or uh, it's the new year, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna not drink for a little bit, and um, that, that has been my experience. And it's, I mean, I don't wanna say eye rolling, but it is a little eye rolling for me when I hear that from those particular um, people in my life because it's like, okay, again. Yeah. I think
1: it's a, a defense mechanisms that, uh, that are built in that they're not aware of. They're already starting to rationalize the inevitable outcome. And so they they try to twist what is going on, the, the reality of the situation. They twist and make it okay in their mind. And so if they take this week off of drinking, knowing that the next week they're going to drink double the amount they would have normally if they didn't take the week off before, they they, they try to make that right in their mind. And the, yeah,
0: it's like you can rationalize anything that you yeah. want to do. And right, drinking's
1: interesting because it's it, well, it's sad because i i've told a few people this it's it's so subtle i almost equate it to cancer because you don't feel it right but it's starting to metastasize and all of a sudden it's not a problem until it's a problem and then where do you go from there that's the personal decision you got to make for yourself
3: and like we were talking about the other day it's usually a problem way before you realize it's a problem yeah
0: right and the other thing that we've noticed just with acquaintances or people that struggled um it's like they have to be ready to change like Another person can say, I'm I'm going to help you get through this. I'm going to do, I'm going to take you to rehab or whatever it is. But it, it really doesn't matter until that person is like ready to do something. To, like till they're at the point where they can do something different. You know what yeah. I mean? We've seen so many of people like, oh, we'll take you to this. We'll do this. And then, um, it, I don't want to say it's frustrating, but it's just almost like, I feel like I have to wait until they're ready because it's not, not going to change until they're ready.
3: Cause I probably knew for a year that I yeah. had a, that it was an issue and it probably took about that long before i finally did something about it
1: yeah you'll know they're ready when they without any pressure uh, or nudging from another friend or family member when they individually themselves walk to their vehicle put the keys in it start it up and drive to get help by themselves without talking to anybody about it that's when you know they're going to be ready
2: i I agree and my experience also is that that person that, you know, that I think I'm going to help, I may not be the person that's going to help them. It it may be someone else. Like, I've been so invested in, um, let's say, certain people in my life and wanting them to be sober, but um, my job is maybe just to accept them as they are and to love them as they are, and um, someone else in the universe, God, a higher power, is going to be there, that person for them that's going to help them make a change. It won't necessarily be me.
1: Absolutely.
3: Yeah. So I drove home from the company picnic that night, and, and Latrice is sitting there, and I said, I, I have a problem. And now the alcoholic in my head was saying, okay, we're going to discuss this problem tonight, and then I'm going to go have one last hurrah. But that <laughs> didn't happen. It started that night. Um,
0: <laughs> and so... So what did you actually So you realized you had a problem. Then what did you I do at that point to fix it? I quit cold You turkey. just stopped cold yeah, turkey I never a went to AA You never did anything. any kind
3: of, wow. Um, for for a while, I kept myself out of certain situations. I think maybe there is a wedding that I didn't go to. Uh, there was right. a, a few functions I didn't go to. But I'd say it took about three months. And by then, I was like, oh, my gosh, I feel so much better. It's like you don't. I never really got hung over but you never realize just how lousy you feel and until you stop drinking for a while and then it's like oh my gosh i feel so I good better now the thought of drinking there's been times here every now and again i think about drinking like this morning like thinking about doing a podcast yeah. like that's probably the first time i've wanted to drink in a long time just because it makes me nervous but um but then i just think in my head like i'll wake up tomorrow feeling like crap i don't want to do that yeah so it now I, and uh, like on a whole other topic too is people can change too. The people you hang out with. Um, there is some people that we hung, we're hanging out with quite a bit, and we hung out with them one more time after I stopped drinking, and I'll, I'll never forget. Like the whole night, they were just asking me, "Oh, you want another juice box? You want another juice box?" And you know, we haven't hung out with them since then. They, they literally just stopped inviting us to like hang out and every time we see him like oh we'll hang out sometime I'm like yeah. I'm like yeah no we're not
2: <laughs> that leads me to a question in my mind um, you stopped cold turkey and it sounds like alcohol had been somewhat of a um, I don't want to call it medication but it helped you on a social level and how did you develop those social skills because the George Murphy that we know is this personable guy who opens up who's honest and and shows up and is there for other people so how did that develop for you
3: um well I so I was always shy but I was always the type of person once I finally got to know somebody I would open up so I mean you can probably all tell it took me a while to really yeah. to to embrace the George face and <laughs> and uh just open up but um obviously with alcohol it would have been from day one and you know it would we like we would have been Best friends with everybody on day one, but, um, Going streaking.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, but so I, and I think just being older and, and probably being more successful in, in the work aspect of my life has helped me to just become more confident. I think, um, so I, yeah, I, I just don't need it anymore.
0: And tell us about how you found CrossFit and how that, uh, helped your sobriety or affected it or? So
3: Latrice was doing a, it was a fit mom's class at the park, at district, the park district and yeah. Molly was the coach there. And I think at the time the class was getting small and they were thinking about just moving it over to, to Thunderbolt. And so one day they were working out at Thunderbolt and Latrice was like, come with me. And Cause she had been telling me about all these workouts they're doing at WADs and like, and Tabatas. I'm like... I would just sit there and nod my head and be like, oh, yeah, it sounds great. Tabata, uh-huh, honey. <laughs> I don't And she, every day she would tell me her workout. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And uh, so she talked me into coming one day, and I don't remember what we did that day, but I was hooked. Wasn't it Fran? I, I think the Airdyne was involved. I, okay. I don't remember. But it made me feel again for the first time how I felt in high school. Like that just uber-competitive star athlete yeah I'm almost 40 now and my knees aren't the same but it's the only place where I can come and just and just feel like that again
2: like you're an athlete yeah yeah
3: and yeah I got these two two guys sitting over here that I can chase and uh and you know on have those days where I can actually be number one on on Wattify and it If there's balls and rowing involved, I don't know why it makes me feel good. I'm almost forty; it shouldn't be that competitive, but that's just how I am, and and I'm just I was hooked from day one.
2: So the competitive side, and then what about the community aspect? How's that been for you?
3: Um, honestly, this is the only place I found where you can come, and there doesn't have to be alcohol involved. I mean, there's people here that drink; some drinking goes on here, but. I don't feel like I have to. I'm not the only one not drinking here. And I so, I, so that's helped a lot.
2: Yeah. So, Shane, talk about how you, what your recovery looked like.
1: Yeah, so like I was talking about earlier, I was going in and out of um, <clears throat> Heinz VA, you know, where I'd, I'd come back out, dry out, and then uh, I'd relapse and start drinking again. And um, that went on from I was drinking less, but my relapses were really bad. Um, and so I was then, instead of drinking every night, I'd binge drink because um, there would be t- periods of sobriety in between. So um, from November to March, I was going in and out of those states. And then, like I'd said, I'd, I'd stop by Thunderbolt one night after a Thursday night throwdown, unbeknownst to me what that even was. And um, met a couple of coaches and then came in for a workout shortly thereafter, uh, fell in love with it. Um, it's interesting, the first week I, I ended up pulling a hamstring on a run. We were sprinting in the back and I couldn't work out for, I want to say, like four or five days. And it, it, really, uh, it really tested me and I failed that test. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, I started drinking again because I couldn't go to work and I couldn't come to CrossFit. And I didn't know what CrossFit even was yet or what it was going to do for me. And I hadn't had enough time to get that kind of ingrained into me. And so I drank when I was supposed to be healing my hamstring. And uh, what better way to heal, right? Was with some barley sodas and carbohydrates.
2: It's interesting though because we were talking about knowing that somebody's ready to change. Yeah. And I think that is an example that you were ready to change. Yes, you had a relapse, but for many people they want to change and it's just that one excuse. It's like, "Oh, well, I pulled my hamstring or whatever the excuse might be, but even though you had a relapse and even though you pulled your hamstring, you still were ready."
1: Yeah, I didn't know I was ready though. I didn't know what CrossFit was going to do for me yet. So um I didn't know that what type of impact it was going to have on me yet because it hasn't come to fruition yet. So once I my hamstring healed up, I came right back. And I got in a consistent... You know, when I first thought I was going to do this, doing an on-ramp with Molly, Molly asked me, so how many times a week do you think you'll come here? I'm like, I don't know, maybe... Maybe on, this is my work schedule, odd schedule, maybe like Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I remember or, that. You were talking maybe, about three days a week, maybe yeah, two maybe, days a maybe week. maybe two days a week. I just don't know. And I asked you, how many days you, you know, do CrossFit? And you're like, oh, six. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> Crazy, right? So where we are today is because now I'm you know, obviously here a lot. And, and so a week would go by, two weeks would go by, and I'd realized I haven't had a drink. And three weeks went by and, every, and all of a sudden a month went by and I hadn't had a drink and so what I was what I was missing or what I was supplementing to try to ease the pain instead of uh, doing it with a, a bottle I found myself doing it with a barbell and it had the same therapeutic I'm not gonna call it drinking therapy but it had the same response
2: well, it is. It's like medicating yourself. Right? Self-medication. Yeah. yeah. So now you're medicating yourself with a barbell.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I engage my demons here and um, this is my medicine and it saved my life.
2: So you exchanged one addiction for another. Yeah. And would you, it was, that wasn't really your case, would you say? Or oh,
1: I, I did
3: for sure. Yeah. I was never the sweets type. Okay. And now there's not an Oreo, a milkshake, a piece of cake that I can pass up. But I guarantee I haven't eaten a million calories worth of that. So <laughs> I think I'm still in the positive.
2: Yeah, definitely on the positive. Huh. Um, so here's a question. Is there a downside or have you noticed a downside to using CrossFit as a replace, as a, as a therapy for your demons?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, there's, there's, there's a potential downside and it depends on the person. So you're, if you're going to trade one addiction for another, if it becomes your addiction in, re- in re- replacing alcohol, the one thing that you have to keep in mind is not overtraining. And when I first started CrossFit, Molly would get on me from time to time and and would berate me.
2: Did you listen?
1: No. Not initially because, <laughs> we again... We still don't listen that often. Yeah, you're dealing with a guy that has all the answers to all the problems. And nobody can tell me anything, so... Although I've had a lot of good positive changes, I'm still working on that aspect. Um, And so, and I'll never forget one day you asked me, are you punishing yourself? And uh, of course, I immediately wrote that off. But later down the road, that came back to me in a session at the VA. And that moment in time when you asked me that question, although it didn't take root then, it did... Um, probably six months down the road in a VA session and now I'm much more smarter in how I train and I've recognized that that I was punishing myself and so that's the only potential downside if you let it get that crazy I mean you're talking I was doing you know the, the most elite CrossFit athletes do upwards of four to six workouts a day probably but they space out a little bit of recovery time in between and by no means am I an elite CrossFit athlete, but I would come in on my off days and I would do the programmed WAD and then I would do three other WADs immediately with after no break. with no break, maybe 10 to 15 minutes at the most, just to reset equipment or whatever it was. But I would be in here for three to four hours and I would do four workouts a day in that four hour time frame.
2: So, and then here's another question um, I have. People in my life who have um, who have alcoholism and who have gone through treatment, and a lot of times with treatment you're working on the trauma um, as well as the addiction. That's two different things. And are you working through your trauma in the VA? Yeah, that's yeah.
1: that's why I go there. Um, I go there twice a month. It used to be four times a month. Now we're down to two. The goal is down to one, and then maybe a checkup every three months or something. Or if I need some Assistance, I can always go back or whatever, but I have a guy there. Uh, he's great and I've known him ever since he was my first um, Therapist and I've been dealing with him the whole time. So he deals with me um, Primarily for the trauma I've never had to get help for the addiction of the alcoholism and I attribute that to CrossFit. I never had to go through um, the 12-step process or um, Alcohol's Anonymous or anything like that. I've never had to seek any outside assistance for that.
2: And I know neither one of you did AA, um, but I'm wondering about making amends. Is that something that you guys did that's one of the steps that people do in AA? Did you ever come to a point where you went back and you thought, oh, this one thing happened, I should apologize to this person um, from my past for something I did when I was drinking? Did anything like that come up?
1: Um, I can't, no, because no. he's gone.
2: Okay. And how do you work through that?
1: A day by day I mean you know it's uh I, I feel that I feel that if, if he would have stayed with me uh, I would have and as part of you know my survivor's guilt um I feel that if if my lieutenant stayed with me that I would have brought him home too cause I brought all my other guys home I mean our squad was pretty banged up I think there was um nine or ten purple hearts <coughs> awarded to my squad um but uh you know I just have that I just have that that feeling that I just know I would have brought him home and the one day that he decided to go with another squad leader um and and do certain things that that um I would have not allowed uh ultimately I think contributed to um his fatality
2: So that's part of what you're working through
1: That's the hardest thing, yeah. yeah. I don't want to get into the specifics. Yeah. Because I want to respect him. Um but I He this was his first tour and I had many others before and um, The first three days he was with me uh, I was I Integrated him in my squad as if he was a private or private first class and I had certain rules don't wear your rank Don't wear a radio Don't point at anything You don't point at anything because it's a leadership posture. You obviously don't wear the radio because I'm a sniper I want to take out your communications, then your leader, or vice versa, and you don't wear your rank obviously for common sense reasons. On the morning of going out to attack from north to south, uh, he had his rank on, and he had a radio on his back. And when I talked to the squad leader he was with um, before he got shot, he was standing up, pointing at a window. He wanted the two or three. 40 millimeter grenades to go into so he got shot killed by a sniper
0: so now that you're you've kind of gone through this journey and obviously you're not at the other side yet but you've made good progress what would you say to other veterans that are maybe kind of behind you on the journey that that you've learned that's like something that you would want to tell them or anyone that would be listening
1: yeah just get help I mean it's it's hard in the beginning um, and and uh, you're going to have to go through some some serious self-reflection and introspection but uh you know it's gonna it's gonna be good a- at the end of the day you're gonna be a much happier person doing you know instead of living this perpetual cycle of you know whether it's drugs prescription pills or alcohol um there's n- there's a guaranteed outcome to that and it's not good um one of the things that i took away from all this is You don't even have to consume alcohol, prescription meds, or drugs to do it. Um, You can live with the wouldows, couldows, and shouldows, and that's a guarantee to a slow suicide. Just the stress that you're going to put on yourself, Mm -hmm. uh, the anxiety, which then ultimately will lead into the things where that will kill yourself in a prolonged fashion.
0: What about you, George? You feel like now that you're kind of on the other side, too, what have you learned from your journey that you would share with other people or?
3: Um, Well, I mean, first back to the, like the forgiveness part of it. I, you know, I apologize to my family for what I've put them through. Um, I think for me, the biggest demon I have to live with, and it's nothing near like what Shane has had to go through with life and death situations, But forgiving myself, I should, like, I should have been, like, a national top-ranked decathlete. And I basically just gave up. I don't know if it it was too hard, if it was just the drinking and the partying. I changed in college. I gave up on that. And it's hard for me to forgive myself because I just sit and think every day what could have been. You know, and to most people, that doesn't seem probably like that big of a deal, but to me, it was. That's who I was, and I changed, and it's because of the alcohol. And so, I, that, I back to with CrossFit, that's what's helping me to deal with that, to help me get back to feeling like how I should have been. I can't go back and change that, but if I can change the future, then I, I think that'll help me to feel better about it and uh I don't even know what the other question oh was. the other
0: question was uh I mean, you've kind of touched on it already, but like lessons learned or something you would share with someone else if they were further back on the path than you like obviously you you've made progress like um i mean, i the only thing I could say is just
3: assess yourself if we talked about it earlier, if you ever feel like you think you need to cut back your drinking or just take some time off, assess it there's you probably need to take more time off than you think um and it's never too late and there's always help anywhere you can find help anywhere
2: um did you have this question for both of you to think about but did you have a friend or a person that you were able to be completely honest with during the time that you were becoming sober a person who held you accountable or something like that that helped you
3: uh, I mean, I always had Latrice and then my best friend, my roommate for four years in college, you know, he lives in the city and we still talk a lot and I could share anything with him. And, you know, we, we still probably talk. I'd say on average a couple times a month That's awesome. and hang out. We try to hang out as much as we can. I don't have a lot of time with three kids, but I can always count on him. And in just in the past six months or so, I, I've, I think Shane and I have opened up to each other about
2: so having like a fellowship. Although with our
3: someone. our reasons for drinking were the same, our what our goals for the future and what we're driving towards is the same, and it just kind of helps to sit here and talk about some of the stupid stuff that we did and, <laughs> and la- kind of try to laugh about it now.
0: So s- Go ahead. I'll let you go
1: yeah I agree uh, that and that ties back into to community and um, I had you know going through my uh, recovery and still going through my recovery I have a few people that I know I can be honest with and just be completely vulnerable and be okay with so that's always uh, good to have but with George here it's a it's a different type of bond because I mean we share stories and um, just going back and forth about the dumb things that we did when we were under the influence. And yeah, it's fun. It's funny to look back and laugh now, but it's, it's, um, a lot of uh, pain and learning lessons about life and a lot of things that had to happen in order to get there and then move on from there. So it's certainly not a badge of honor, but it's nice that we can look back and kind of joke about it a little bit. Like I was telling them, uh, where I, my house is there was this neighborhood bar and it was only two blocks away um, which was very convenient for me and I'll never forget um, I went there on a Sunday morning because I have Bears breakfast and what better time to drink beer and eat eggs than to prep for the Bears game so you know like I needed my arm twisted anyways so I went there and had the Bears breakfast watched the Bears game and before I know it um, the bar's closing, and I'm still there, and I'm still drinking. I mean, you're talking 10-plus hours. It's a full day. I mean, it's RX plus, <laughs> <laughs> right? So um, that's what I remember, right? And then the next thing I, I think is um, how loud the lawnmower is. My neighbor, he's out there cutting his grass, and I'm lying there like, gosh, dang, that lawnmower is so loud. Like, it's ridiculous, you know, and I'm trying to sleep, and so I'm not happy. And uh, it just keeps going and going, and it's not getting any quieter. It's, in fact, getting louder. And so I, I lift my head up, and then I realize my vision is obscured as I turn my head because I have leaves stuck to my face. And the reason why the lawnmower is so loud is because I'm outside. <laughs> oh, So boy. I never even made it inside the house that night. And I had one hand on the stairs to get up to the patio, and I saw my neighbor there mowing his yard at uh, whatever it was, 8 o'clock in the morning. I had leaves stuck to my face. (laughs) And, yeah, that was one of those stories that I told George and we just laughed about. Well but, and
2: they say your secrets make you sick, right? So if you yeah. can be honest about it and you can get it off your chest, but, then that's you know, better.
1: I didn't have a problem.
3: I still have visions of you driving down the road on your ten speed holding a case of beer.
1: Yeah, yeah, I ran out of beer. Bad <laughs> logistical error on my part. Uh that was uh Monday night football. So right. I didn't have to go to work that day when I woke up in my yard. So um got more beer. Um, throughout the day, obviously drank and getting ready for Monday night football. And so like third quarter or whatever it was, I ran out. So obviously I can't drive. Um, so the responsible thing we do is get out the old 10 speed. That was, that wasn't even, I don't even know whose it was. I mean, it was in my garage, but it wasn't my daughter's, um, and dust off the cobwebs and like one of the tires is, like almost flat <laughs> and so I ended up riding the 10-speed to the gas station the one gas station in town and and got a case of beer and it's hard it's hard to ride uh, a 10-speed like this little thin wheel 10 speeds with a case of beer on one side and it's not counterbalanced with any weight on the other side
2: that was CrossFit before you were doing yeah. CrossFit
1: yeah <laughs> and so yeah it was a sprint to get back so I didn't miss it Harlini plays <laughs>
2: um so maybe we can close with um if you guys have any idea of resources or things that helped you I'm gonna start as a as a person on the other side as a person who has um had alcoholics in my life that have gotten help um I know that when someone in our in our circle really needed help. I personally reached out and I got help from um, a therapist myself and I went and worked through some of those things and came up with a plan and idea of what was my job and what wasn't my job um, because you can't fix somebody else, right? And so um, the group came together and offered this person treatment. Um, So I would say if someone's wanting to help somebody that is Something you can do first is help yourself to, to go to a therapist, go to a counselor, to go to somebody who has more resources than you do. Um, so that's just from my side. What about you guys? What resources would you say?
1: Um, I would just say out the uh, the veterans crisis line. The number is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Again, that's one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Or you can send a text to eight. Three eight two five five. That's eight three eight two five five. So, if you're having um, feelings of depression or feelings of harming yourself, please reach out to that number. It's confidential, and you will get help.
3: And I, although neither of us went to AA, I you know I researched. That I was planning on going, but I I just for some reason didn't. But I know quite a few people
0: that have gone through that, and it's helped them. So I. I would definitely start there, too. Well, I think this was great. Any other questions you guys want to hit or anything anybody want to cover? I think it's probably a good place to wrap. So thanks for joining us and thanks for sharing your stories. I think it's awesome to, that you can share those honestly and hopefully it will help other people that are in the same situation. And uh, There's one other thing, and I'm sorry. And that's all right.
1: I, I have to mention this. Um, if you are, are a, a person of faith um, and you have that background, Uh, one of the things that um, I didn't mention is that I got reintegrated back with my church and Mm -hmm. so that was another huge resource and help for me yeah so and I also think that with me getting knocked down in my shower uh, to kinda start the process of recovery I think that was God certainly kinda punching me in the chest a little bit
2: just to add to the person of faith um, in my opinion a church or a community of faith should be a place that you can go to and be yourself and be honest and um, it should be a place that you can go and get help. So if a person feels like they can't go to their community of faith, they should find a different one because there are people of faith and communities of faith that will accept you as you are and help you get help, for sure.
1: Absolutely, and I just wanted to thank you, Molly. Um, <clears throat> I uh, I can't even begin to put into words um, how Thunderbolt CrossFit has saved my life. Of course, there was faith in, in having my daughter to help me to to get on the straight note for her, but I think one of the most monumental impacts in my life was Thunderbolt CrossFit, and, and thank you, so.
2: Thank you, and, you know, I, my vision is, is I'm on a mission to help people, I know Scott is as well, and when you came and you've helped yourself and George you as well, I think that that mission goes beyond Utah. you, you guys are also helping others that can hear that story, the people that you're reaching out to in your lives and continue to spread out that mission
0: all right well thanks for joining us guys this has been another episode of the thunderbolt strength podcast and that's a wrap